everybody, and welcome to episode 17 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week, we're going to be talking about CoffeeScript with Jeremy Ashkenaz. And Jeremy is here. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing good. How are y'all doing? Good. It's been a few episodes since you've been on. Do you want to just give people a quick introduction again? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Jeremy Ashkenaz, and you may know me from such open source projects as uh, CoffeeScript or Backbone.js or Underscore.js. And uh, I work for the interactive news team at the New York Times, and uh, I used to work at full full time. I still work on it, sort of part time, on a documentcloud.org, which was a Knight Foundation funded project uh, where we open sourced a lot of JavaScript stuff. All right. Um, we also have AJ O'Neill. What's up? That's we, all I got to say. <laughs> we also have Jameson Dance. Hey, guys. And then we're also going to be um, introducing a few new regular panelists. We have Joe Eames, who's been on the show before. Hey. Do you want to give a quick introduction, Joe? Yeah. Um, I'm the uh, creator of testdrivenjs.com, which is a website devoted to bringing test-driven development to JavaScript. And I'm also an author for Pluralsight. Awesome. And we also have Tim Caswell. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself for us? Uh, sure. So I am a open source addict. I write codes because I can't sleep sometimes. I've recently worked a lot on Node. And in the past, I've worked with Jeremy on CoffeeScript and Backbone and other parts of Document Cloud. Awesome. All right. So um, let's jump in and talk about CoffeeScript. Um, uh, Jeremy, do you want to give us a quick introduction to what CoffeeScript is? Sure. CoffeeScript is just sort of a fun uh, thought experiment, which which and uh, and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of languages that compile the JavaScript. If you haven't checked it out, there's a there's a great page on the CoffeeScript wiki where um, some folks have just put in all different kinds of languages that folks have written that compile in the JavaScript. So there's the usual things that you'd expect, like um, you know things like Python and Ruby and Haskell and other scripting languages that sort of cross compile over. There's interesting things like statically typed extensions to JavaScript or security enforcing JavaScript um, or special optimized um, versions of multi-targeting um, programming languages like uh, Hacks or Haxia, I never know how to pronounce it, where you can compile down to different runtimes. Um, there's visual programming tools and, and all kinds of things. Um, so the idea with CoffeeScript is sort of not to go in that direction and to take a different idea or a different semantic or a different runtime and implement it on top of JavaScript because there's lots of great languages that do that kind of thing already. The idea with CoffeeScript is to take the core sort of um, the core things about JavaScript that are characteristic to it, sort of the, the core nature of JavaScript, and then come up with a way of writing it that exposes um, what it is in a simple way. So part of the goal is not to have any special semantics being added by the CoffeeScript compiler just to take advantage of what JavaScript already offers, but find an easier way to sort of write it. And so it's a funny premise, you know. Part part of the premise is that it can't really do that much for you, right? If it's anything that's technically interesting, CoffeeScript probably can't do it because you'd have to implement stuff on top of JS, and we have to sort of try to be very lightweight. But it's also been interesting that I think because of that um, restriction, it has turned out to be to be quite successful. So I, I don't know how, I think these numbers are pretty skewed because of GitHub's methodology, but it recently cracked into the GitHub top 10 programming languages list, uh, knocking off Objective-C, which is pretty crazy. I think most of that is, uh, is auto-generated um, template files in Rails projects, but, but who knows? It's, uh, it's, it's doing decently. So there's, there's this, you know, everyone who's worked with JavaScript for a long time and who does JavaScript day-to-day -day knows how 
unideal of a language it is, right? So it's a beautiful language. It's got a great heart. There's lots of interesting um, core pieces to it in terms of its flexible object model and, uh, and its nice sort of prototypal semantics where you can build your own object orientation. But at the same time, its usability is not where it, where it should be, right? It basically hasn't changed. The way that we use it today basically hasn't changed in, in 10 or 15 years. Um, and despite great things like ES5, you still can't take advantage of it if you have to target major browsers or if you want to write JavaScript that runs everywhere and that will run in IE7 as well as it runs on Node.js. So I think CoffeeScript is sort of hitting that, hitting that sweet point for a lot of folks who, mm -hmm. uh, who want a nicer way to write the JavaScript that they already have to write. Right. So, so I want to ask the other panelists, how many of you guys um, are using CoffeeScript or are using it on a regular basis? So at ITV, we actually use CoffeeScript full-time for all of our new code, and we love it. There were a couple grumpsters when we first started, but everybody is a big fan of CoffeeScript now. So you rock, Jeremy. Thanks. <laughs> nice. Cheers. So I, I use it a lot, but I'm using Rails, and Rails uses it by default. So uh, I, I, I typically use it. Um, just because the the files are already set up to you know precompile from CoffeeScript to JavaScript, so it, it works out pretty well for me just to use it in the uh, asset pipeline that way. And uh, you know it's it's nice in a lot of ways um, for writing your JavaScript. Is anyone else using it on a regular basis? I actually don't use it, but that's for the most part I'm writing Node libraries, so I only have one runtime to target, and they're libraries. So the less dependencies, the better. The, the better. Right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see the need for it for applications where you you have a certain style of programming and you don't like all the boilerplate. It can be very handy. And I think doesn't npm have a, a field that you can put to to like precompile your CoffeeScript into JavaScript before you publish? I think I saw yeah. Isaac tweet about that or something because somebody was somebody was complaining about CoffeeScript in npm and and he well so that's that you that's that's actually one of the really funny things. So I think currently CoffeeScript is the, if you look at search.npmjs.org, you'll see that CoffeeScript is the second most depended on NPM module as a dependency, which is kind of crazy <laughs> because really if everyone's doing it correctly, there should be zero NPM modules with CoffeeScript as a dependency, right? You're not supposed to depend on it at runtime. There's no need to. You can just precompile it into JavaScript before you publish your package. Um, so that's that's funny. Unless you're like making some special CoffeeScript add-on that needs yeah. it as a runtime or whatever. Unless unless you're making like a special CoffeeScript REPL or something, then there's no real, real reason to depend on it. So it, I don't know what all those packages are doing that, that they think they need it, but there's quite a few. Mm -hmm. So what dependencies does CoffeeScript have in order to compile? Is it just JavaScript or is there it more is, to it? Well, it's, it is just CoffeeScript actually. So it's, it's written in itself um, and it's been that way I think since 0 0.5. Um, it's got one sort of major external dependency which is JSON, which is a parser generator um, maintained by Zach, Z-A-A-C-H on, uh, on GitHub. And, uh, and that's just a, just a nice JavaScript parser generator that happens to generate efficient parse tables. Um, it does, what is it, it does bottom up. Um, parse tables, so you can. I think there's LLR, LLR one modes, and then a few other, a few other types that you can opt into, and you give it a grammar, and it gives you back um, basically a parser, and it's fast, which is the main thing. There's lots of of nice JavaScript parser projects with good APIs that that can't parse particularly quickly, and this one is, is he's sort of done all the work both theoretically and in the JavaScript implementation to make it very very quick for parsing. It takes a while to generate the parser, but once it's generated, it's quick to parse. Nice. So one other thing I'm curious about, and this is kind of up Joe's alley here, is have you seen people writing tests in like QUnit and stuff using CoffeeScript? Sure. Actually, I think that's one of the things that people sort of start with, people who are evaluating it or looking at it. Um, I've heard a lot of stories about folks who aren't using it for their app, but they're using it for their Jasmine tests. 
just because I think when you have a, you try to make those tests as readable as possible, right? You're giving it a string and then you're passing a function all the time. So it's always like name this thing, pass a function, name this thing, pass a function. And people don't like typing function, function, function. So that's like their first little uh, gateway drug into uh, trying CoffeeScript more is to redo their Jasmine tests with it. Right. Interesting. So that that's one thing you're, you bring up uh, typing the keyword function over and over again, um, as opposed to using the arrow notation. And I've, I've heard some people complain about it and other people go crazy over it, you know, because they love it. Um, what, what kind of reactions have you guys heard regarding the, the arrow notation? That's the dash uh, greater than or the equals greater than. So uh, I remember Joaquin, who used to be on the podcast, he talks about how it encourages the use of anonymous functions. He was kind of grumpy about that um, because who likes anonymous functions? Um, and I find myself doing that a lot too. I, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I know it's way better to, to write or way, way easier, I should say, to write the code like that. Um, and since it's easy, I do it a lot. I, I don't know. I haven't really been you bit should feel hard dirty. by it. That's but. how you should feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is though, is for me, it feels a little bit more expressive because my brain can parse that just as easily as parsing function, and uh, it kind of indicates there's something you know that comes after this that that is that means something, and so my brain can just parse that and say it's a function. It's whatever's nested here is part of this function. And so, you know, is is writing is encouraging people to write anonymous functions just a, a something that comes out of it maybe being a little bit more expressive or? Well, I think there's a couple a couple different things to get into here. Um, one of which is that it's not so much about the anonymousness of the functions like that. That isn't really the issue, especially because modern um, browser engines can tell you the name of a function even if it is technically an anonymous function. Whatever the property it's attached to, they'll have that in the stack trace. Um, so many more functions are named than you would think. The real issue with the, the semantics of it is that in JavaScript, you have these three different types of function objects. You have function declarations, you have named function expressions, and you have function expressions. And semantically, they all behave slightly differently. Um, and it's problematic because there's bugs related to, to function declarations and named function expressions in Internet Explorer that can trip you up pretty badly if you happen to run into them. Um, and, and it's also weird to have these three different types of objects that behave slightly differently but are basically the same thing. So that's one semantic um, simplification that CoffeeScript does is it says we just want to have one type of function. We don't want to have three different kinds that work differently. So we just have function expressions, which are the flexible kind, right? A function declaration you can only use sort of procedurally at the top level. You can't use that as an expression in a larger part of your program. You can't pass a function declaration as a callback, for example, right? It'll become a named function expression if you do that. So, so we just say, you know, throw those other ones out. Let's just do function expressions. Keep it simple. Not have different types of things to worry about. And so that's that's one piece of it. Um, and then the other piece of it is the thin arrow, um, fat arrow distinction, which is maybe it's being talked about. Maybe is going to make it into the next version of JavaScript if they end up um, adopting it. But this idea that in JavaScript, and you'll know this if you do a lot of um, jQuery or, or prototype, where you know whenever you need to to bind the the this value of a function to stay the same even as you're passing off the function as a reference into an, an options object or into a callback, then you have to bind that function to the current value of this. So you do that with, with um, function.prototype.bind, or you do that with jQuery.proxy, or you do that with underscore.bind, or you write var self equals this. Or there's a million different ways of saying, I want this to stay the same. And CoffeeScript gives you that thing where you say, give me a fat arrow, and the fat arrow means that the this at the time that you write the function does not change. So even if you pass it off and store it in a different object, that this stays the same. So so I think that's that's sort of the interesting shift, right? With the arrows, you have the visual difference, which I don't think is, is super important between typing out function and typing an arrow. 
but then you have the simplification of not having three different kinds of functions anymore, and you have the ability to very easily say, give me a function where the value of this doesn't change. Hey, uh, I'm curious, uh, why did you choose that uh, particular arrow syntax? Where did you pull that from? <clears throat> so uh, sort of visually and symbolically, the we were, I mean, this is one of the things that actually was debated a great deal, like all of these sort of little visual things in on the GitHub um, issues, if you want to go look at it in the early versions as to what the notation should be. But the basic idea is just that, you know, with a function, the input points to the output, right? The input goes on one side and your value is on the other side. And so visually you have this thing where you can see the left-hand side is the input and then the arrow pointing to the right-hand side. And because there is no, you don't have to write return in CoffeeScript, right? The value of the expression on the right-hand side is the value of the function. There's sort of this nice little parallelism that you have where it's just literally input points to output and you can see how it works. But you didn't pull that from any other language? Um, no, I think we did. I think that uh, doesn't doesn't Haskell do something similar? I mean, Ruby uses arrows for a different purpose, so we weren't we weren't sort of following off of that. I think oh, the main okay. idea was just to have the arrow to be a pointer. Right at the time, I don't I don't remember how much input or if you already had that syntax, but I'd been doing OCaml and it has a similar syntax. Yeah, I haven't used OCaml, but I think I think it just it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, you know I'm uh, I do some .NET and .NET has uh, the same exact syntax for its lambdas, and I think they pulled that from OCaml. So I was just curious if they had a common parent for that uh, syntax and that expression of the visual representation. It's probably floating around, and people probably see it and don't realize they've seen it, you know, and then it comes back up. And I've, I've heard other justifications for it, too, where with a thin arrow, people say that it looks like a lambda, right? If you sort of take the thin arrow and twist it on its side, it looks, it looks visually kind of like a lambda. So that's another, another source. Yeah, I, I've noticed, you know, when I was learning CoffeeScript that it, I didn't find it to be difficult at all to make that jump and feel like I don't need the function all the time simply because, you know, coming from having done .NET programming with lambdas, it seemed very natural to me. Can I just say it feels harder to go from CoffeeScript back to JavaScript <laughs> than from JavaScript to CoffeeScript? I do weird stuff in JavaScript now. Well, it, it, I think it's interesting because syntactically you can get away with a little bit more with CoffeeScript. And uh, so for me, going from Ruby to CoffeeScript is much less of a, a leap than going from Ruby to JavaScript. And really what it comes down to is in Ruby, you don't have to include the curly braces or the semicolons and things like that. And so I wind up forgetting them in JavaScript. And then my code does funky stuff or it won't run because it needs those curly braces or something. And uh, see, in CoffeeScript, I I, I'm just I'm just saying, just in programming mode, I, I don't have to make as big a transition. I'm I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. It's just that's the way it is. Well, I was just gonna say I think the curly braces is a little difficult for me when I go to read because I like I like some sort of visual cue, and I think it's okay to get rid of some of the syntax because obviously we don't need all of it. A lot of it's just superfluous. But I do like some syntax to like clue me into what's going on. And that's that's where I found it to be just a little confusing is understanding when a function's being invoked because it's just like function name space, 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 space. Yeah, I've I've heard a few people say that they would <clears throat> like to see um some kind of closing at the end of functions like an end or something keyword. Y you know, I yeah. agree. I agree with what AJ is saying about visually. It seems a little bit difficult to parse through, but I think that the jump from, you know, a more high uh, common server side language into CoffeeScript is a bit easier than it is to go into JavaScript because I think JavaScript is just such a different mindset, and CoffeeScript is kind of like pulling that mindset back to something that's more typical, something closer to to Java, even if the visual representation looks quite a bit different. Those sounded like fighting words. <laughs> <laughs>
Is this Java, something that's closer Java, to Java? Java? Or, that's or that's or, a good thing? Yeah. So, well, think, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's more familiar to people that are doing, you know, a Sursa language. In terms, well, in terms, it, in terms of grouping, oh, visually, real quickly. Um, I, so one of the things is that you you totally can you know delimit everything in terms of its begin and end um, in CoffeeScript. And if you prefer that style, then you definitely should. But instead of having do end and open curly close curly, um, it's easier because you can just use parentheses. Right? Parentheses are the logical way to group um, operations, whether that's a block of code, whether that's the arguments to a function, whether that's the operators inside of a complex piece of math. You know, you can use parentheses to group anything you'd like. In there, so you can actually put parentheses around the body of your function. Sure, <laughs> it's it's because everything's an expression, right? So everything will. Right, isn't that why you can do that? Uh, uh, that I guess I guess that's I guess that's sort of part of the reason. Yeah, yeah. Parentheses can just pop right in. So I wanted to ask you about. Um, I posted this link. I was somebody posted this thing on Hacker News about linguistic relativity, about how the languages that you speak affect the way that you think about stuff. Do you think stuff like that applies to programming languages, where different languages um, will affect the way you approach problems? And if so, how do you think CoffeeScript affects how people approach problems as opposed to JavaScript? That's a very good question. I think I think the whole notion of you know the Saper-Whorf hypothesis and and linguistic relativity is one that's much debated over and much argued over in academic circles. And everyone's heard the anecdote about Eskimos having fifty different words for snow. But how true is that really? It's you know it's yeah. probably as true as as the stories I, say. I, but at the same time, there are you know certain certain tribes that you know that don't have the cardinal directions, but only have left and right, and have to express how to get around in terms of left and right instead of north, south, east, and west. So there, there's a little bit of that going on um, in in human languages. I think there's maybe less than folks thought, you know, at a certain point in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, but at the same time, in programming, it's very interesting because in programming, we know that that you know, well, all real programming languages, you know, being Turing compete complete are able to express the concepts that you can express in any other Turing language, right? You can you can express in JavaScript all of the semantics of Haskell if, should you choose to, or or vice versa. 